and good morning again. Great to see you all here today, and um, it's a, have some slightly warmer weather today, um, apart from that cold Antarctic uh, chill that we've had this past few days. So let's uh, hope we warm you up with, with the Word of God as well this morning. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 16 to 22 this morning. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear witness, sorry, all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, "Is not this Joseph's son?" Let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this morning, and we just thank you for this honour that we have to be able to come before your throne to learn from you. Lord, I pray that as I speak, Lord, that you'd be speaking through me. And Father, I pray that our hearts would indeed would be open, that our, that our minds would be attentive, and that we would seek to want to learn, Father, for your sake, not just ours. But Father, we pray this morning that indeed that the devil would be held at bay. Lord, that the Spirit would have free reign to be able to, to move among us and to minister to us. And Father, I pray that he indeed would minister to every need that we have here this morning. I thank you once again for your goodness. I thank you for this grace that we have, which has brought us up to heaven from the pits of hell. We thank you once again for your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. On Friday, I had the opportunity to visit Anthony in hospital again. Um, he's still struggling um, and has been in there for the past week um, where the nurses have been doing their very best to try to get him some weight on. Uh, he's lost a bit of weight. And while we were there speaking about the Lord and the scriptures, um, a fellow came in the actual room and there was a nurse in the room as well with him. Um, and this particular fellow was going around cleaning and doing little bits and pieces here and there. And um, Anthony introduced me to him and, and to the nurse as well. And this particular young fellow um, said that he was Anthony's maid. And I said, oh yeah, you're his maid, are you? And uh, I said, so what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm cleaning up and, and helping to, uh, to put things in order. I said, oh, that's good. That's good. And we continue with our discussion. So I sat down and we started to talk about the things of God and some of the challenges that he was having in his own life. And at one particular point, just as I thought he was leaving the actual room, he turned to both of us and he, go, and he said, do you believe in the Lord? 
Now, when someone says, do you believe in the Lord? It, it makes me question, do you know the Lord? Because a, a, a person who's, who doesn't know anything about Christianity would not call him Lord normally, would they? So I had these questions uh, floating around in my mind. I thought, is he Christian? Um, and why would he call him Lord if he, if, he, you know, if he didn't believe in him? Could he be unsaved? What sort of a question was it? So we said, yes, we believe in the Lord. Do you believe in him as well? And we're waiting for the response, and he started thinking. You could see he was starting to think. And with every second that passed, um, I thought to myself, he doesn't believe in the Lord. Or at least he doesn't believe in this Lord that we believe in. Because my next question was going to be to him, how many, which Lord, which Lord are you talking about? But he, he then went on to say that he had his own system of belief, which is, hey, it's par for course. Um, a lot of people have their own system of, of belief. And so we started to question about it and we sort of said, you know, what is it that you believe? And he began to, instead of giving us reasons why he believed, started to, started to, to, to give us one after the other reasons why you shouldn't believe. <laughs> so the first one he started off with is, oh, look, I can't really believe in that because there's so much suffering in the world. He goes, and, and God should have done something about it by now. I said, okay. Did you understand that he sent his son into the world to actually save the world from their sin? Do you understand that he, that he himself allowed his son to go through the suffering that we go through, uh, but in a much worse way? So we started to talk about that, and I, and I said to him, do you understand Jesus did miracles, and, and he, he, he saved people, and he, he rose people from the grave, and he did all this sort of stuff, and still people didn't believe. So then he sort of accepted that. He said, well, God has, okay, he's done something. But why is he doing something now? Why can't he do it again? Which is a valid question when you think of it. He, did it, he goes, it was 2,000 years ago he did all that. Why can't he do it again? So we attempted to explain that when God sent his son into the world, it was already a, a fulfillment of something he promised a long time before. But how many times would you like him to repeat the same thing over and over? I said, because you're asking something to be done in your day. And he said, yeah, I want something done today. I want to see these miracles today. And I said, okay, so when you have children, aren't they want to, aren't, don't they want the same thing that you had then? And he'll say, he said, I suppose, yeah. So you're saying that every generation God has to do something new in order to keep you believing when he's already done it and it's recorded. So he began to understand and accept that line of logic as well. Otherwise, God is trying to prove himself over and over. Yes, I'm here. Look, I'll do something. I'll do a trick for you. Look, I'm here. I'll do another trick for you. So he understood that it wasn't the number of miracles that happened that proves God's existence. Because there are people suffering all over the world. Now, Jesus came and he... And he he cured people of leprosy. He made the blind to see, caused the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, rose people from the grave. But really, how many other people are deaf, blind and dumb and dead? How many things does God have to do to prove that he actually exists? And is that why Jesus came? Did Jesus really come to, to cure all the sufferings and ills of the world? Well, the answer is no. They were, they were a witness that he was delivering the true message. 
You see, the Bible simply says that the Jews seek after a sign and the Greeks after wisdom. So Jesus' miracles were a a testament. They were a, a testimony of the fact that this was a genuine prophet sent by God because the Jews had been given a specific thing by God that said, if I send you a prophet, he's been, I'm going to prove it to you that he's a prophet. And one of those things that I'm going to do is, is show you through signs and wonders and miracles that that is a genuine person that I've sent. And if he can't do it, if he can't prophesy and he doesn't have any of those, don't believe what he says. So the Jews seek after a sign. And Jesus gave plenty of signs. But did they believe him? No. Even after he rose people from the grave, they still didn't believe him. Then his next question was, oh, but the Bible's been changed so many times. Heard that one before, haven't you? They've changed it so many times. You know, there's so many different things. And, uh, and after we explained that one, and he goes, oh, you know, but we don't really know which is the real one. which is." I said, well, we've got 5,000 manuscripts. Yes, 5,000. <laughs> I said, they've got five, at least 5,000 manuscripts. I said, some dating back to almost 200, the year 200, which is, a, which is only a, not even 100 years after they were written. And he goes, oh, okay. So every question that he had was really only something that he'd heard from someone else. And he was just repeating it like a parrot without actually ever knowing or having having ever dug into the truth to find out what the truth actually was. So then we, we, we saw the opportunity. So we explained the gospel to him and we said, well, Jesus came to save sinners like us. He paid the penalty of our sin. And we started taking through the Ten Commandments. And my usual, usual way I do it is I say, oh, the Bible gave us Ten Commandments. Do you think you've kept those? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. He goes, I've pretty much kept them. And I said, well, do you think you're going to heaven then? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, for sure I'm going to heaven. I said, what would you think you're going to heaven? And he said, well, look, I'm, a pretty, I'm, a, I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. I think God's, God's a merciful God. I said, okay, yeah, he is. I said, he goes, and I think, I think that God, when, when I get to, to heaven and God says, um, all right, what have you done? I'll, I'll be able to say to him, I've done pretty well. I said, well, do you want to test that now before you get there? Shall we do that? Yeah, let's do it. So we started taking through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. We'll start with a simple one for you, okay? Thou shalt not bear false witness. I said, have you ever lied? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, do you know what that makes you? He goes, well, let's think about it. If you lie, you are a, a liar. Yeah, it makes you a liar. Okay, so that's number one gone. Number two, I shall not steal. You ever stole anything? Goes, oh, yeah. I said, well, if you've stolen something, what does that make you? He goes, a thief. And then we started going through them. And, and thou shalt not commit adultery. And already he, he admitted that, that he looked, after, looked at women to last after them. So that was already adultery. He hadn't kept the Sabbath, had, hadn't honoured God, had created gods in his own image. He had coveted, he had done... So he went through. So by the end of it, the poor, the poor guy <laughs> realised that he wasn't going to get in front of heaven and say, hey, I'm here, let me in. He, he realised all of a sudden that there was something amiss here. 
that by God's standard, he wasn't going to actually make it. So then we explained why, why Jesus had to come to this earth. And he, he listened attentively. I must, I must give him that. And, and, and I pray that, uh, that God will open his eyes. He didn't give his heart that day. But um, you could, he asked a question. He goes, at the end of the day, at the end of that conversation, he, was, he, turned, he walked, was about to walk out the door and turns to me and goes, how many people have you converted? I said, well, I don't do any converting. God does the actual converting. He goes, you must be some sort of a minister, right? I said, yeah, actually, you, you guessed correctly. So pray for, we'll pray for this uh, Anthony's maid. I don't know. I've forgotten his name. Pray for Anthony's maid, please. Um, but during that conversation, what, what I was thinking at the back of my mind is how Satan keeps people captive, how he keeps them in the dark, how he, how he gets them to, uh, to believe um, the most silly things that the world's wisdom continually just throws up and causes them to, to create this model in their mind, this view of the world, which is not even real. So when you start to explain to them, this is the reality that you're in, the, the light of God can actually break through into that darkness that they're in and can make a big difference in their life. And we're testimony of that, you see. So if you're here today and you've accepted Christ as your saviour, you understand what it means to be in darkness. You, you understand, and I do, um, that, that, God, that, that Satan had me for, for many years. He had me in darkness. He had me chained. He had me locked up in a cell. And I didn't realise I was actually in there until the light of God came through. And I, and I saw the way God saw and the first thing I saw was me. And when I looked at me, I realised I didn't like me anymore. I realised there was something wrong with me. And I needed, I needed something to be sorted out. I realised that, that I had sin. I realised I was then accountable to God for that sin. And then I realised that Jesus had come to set me free from that sin. And the penalty of that sin. It's amazing how many times we hear these poor and sorry excuses that, that the same ones over and over again for reasons why people can't put their trust in Jesus or don't want to put their trust in Jesus. But it's basically just the devil's propaganda. It's the world's wisdom, just repackaged and just, just blurted out in a different way. But it's the same rubbish over and over and over again. In the, I've chosen to look over the last few weeks, at the devil. But over the last two weeks, over the last two sermons, sorry, so the, the ser these sermons and series on, on Satan have been going for six weeks now. The last two weeks, I wanted to focus and I wanted you to understand because I didn't want us to, to be in the doldrums. I didn't want to get us to get to a position to think more highly of Satan than what he is. So I wanted you to understand these past two sermons that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He is much greater who is in, he who is in you. Jesus has defeated the devil. He defeated the devil. The devil thought he had him beat, but he didn't. Um, and Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise that he gave to Eve all the way back in the garden. He was the seed of that woman who would come to crush the serpent's head. And the devil, as, is, as intelligent and powerful as, she, as he is, is not all powerful and is not all intelligent because there's only one who is all-intelligent and all-powerful, and that's our God. 
And he's powerful and intelligent because he showed himself to be over and over again. And he sent his son to save us. And he did that by sending his perfect son into the world. The son that was sitting on a throne in heaven. And he sent him into the world and he defeated the devil by doing a number of things. First thing he did for his 33 years of life on this earth, he lived the absolute perfect life. Absolute perfect life. He obeyed every commandment. I mean, that fellow was judged against, against just 10. There are plenty more in the Bible. And Jesus fulfilled and, and obeyed every one of those commandments that God gave to Moses. He obeyed them absolutely perfectly. He lived his entire life, though, tempted by sin as we are. And under constant attack of the devil, you see, the devil put a whole lot more effort into Jesus than he does into you and me. Because he has a vested interest in it. Because if he could, could get Jesus to crack, if, get him, if he could get him to break, then he'd won. All he had to do was get him to sin once. And it was game over. But he couldn't do it. After all his attempts, Jesus maintained a perfect, perfectly obedient life to God's perfect law. And thus, he showed himself to be the spotless lamb of God, the one who was chosen before the foundation of the world, who the Bible says actually was, cruc- was, was died before the foundation of the world for you and me. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 with me. I just want to just clarify... These things that Jesus had to achieve in order to defeat the devil. First Peter chapter one verse eighteen. For as much as ye know that ye are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus was the spotless lamb of God, and he was spotless because he never broke a commandment in his life. Not one, ever. If we compare ourselves to him, we've broken most of them. That's why we need saving. And that's why he is the saviour. So Jesus became the perfect sacrifice. The one who would take our place. The one who would be acceptable to God. You see, the Old Testament required a lamb without blemish to be the sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. But Jesus was the perfect lamb who would cover the sins of the world. Second point is that he maintained a perfect relationship with his father. He maintained a perfect relationship with his father throughout his entire life and was in constant fellowship with him. Let me ask you a question. How is your fellowship with God on a day-to-day basis? On a minute-by-minute basis? On a week, on a month, on a year? Compared to our wavering relationship that we have with God, Jesus had a perfect relationship with him. In perfect communication, perfect obedience, perfect fellowship. 
We struggle to have fellowship with each other sometimes. But Jesus had a constant and perfect and abiding relationship with his Father. And the relationship that he has with his Father becomes now the foundation of the relationship that we can have with the Father, you see. Because he becomes the conduit of that relationship. He, he's put himself in that middle. You see, man and God is the perfect conduit, the perfect one to join man and God. Turn to John chapter 14 with me. John chapter 14, verse 19. John 14, 19 says, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. You want to know who your connection to God is? It's Jesus. Jesus is our perfect connection with God. He is in the Father. The Father is in him and he is in us. He's our connection to God. He's the one who connected us back to God in a way that gave us life and restored the fellowship that was completely broken. Jesus in every way has become that link the foundation of a new relationship that we'd never had before, that we'd never experienced before. It's an enduring relationship, and it's a relationship that he has a responsibility to maintain as well. He makes sure this relationship keeps, keeps together. He's the one who continues to work with us and to be our advocate to the Father in heaven. He is the mediator between us and God. He not only has restored the relationship, but he continually works to maintain the relationship even when we mess it up. He never gives up on us. That's why the scriptures say, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He is the one who has a responsibility to keep that relationship together. The next thing he did is that he then died for the sins of the entire world. He gave his life. Yes, he was, he was eligible to be the spotless lamb of God. He maintained the perfect fellowship with God. And then in perfect obedience and perfect fellowship with God, he went to a cross as the spotless lamb of God. And he became a suitable ransom for us. He was the only possible substitution for us. And he took our place. He even descended into hell, the Bible said, and preached to, to people down there. And for three days he was in a grave. On the third day, the Bible says that he rose from that grave, you see. He defeated death on that third day because death could not hold him. The Bible says that the, the, the wages of sin is death, you see. The wages of sin. But because he was spotless, it couldn't hold him. And neither could hell. It did not have the ability to lock him in, to close the door and, 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 and hold him in there. 
He chose to enter through that door. He's the one who chose it. How many people choose to go through that door? There aren't many who choose to choose that particular direction because it's a one way. You ever seen that thing in the Greeks that say, abandon hope or you enter into here? That's what it was. Before Jesus came, there was no hope of ever getting out through death. In rising from the grave, he fulfilled the promise to all of mankind that God had made from the beginning. And he has repeated and, 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 um, and built upon throughout the entire Bible by giving more and more information about his coming. God made the promise to, to Eve at the beginning that this, this seed of hers would, would crush the serpent's head. But throughout the Bible, God then just kept on giving us more and more and more information that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that, that the way he would die, how he would be betrayed. And it went on and on, which line he would come down from. It's amazing the detail that God gave about Jesus Christ before he was born. And after he rose from the grave, he defeated death. The Bible then says that he ascended into heaven in the sight of all his disciples. And just as the angels pronounced his coming to the shepherds, remember? So we're going to hear about that probably tonight. So as, as when he was born, the Bible says that there were shepherds in the field attending to their sheep and their, their flock. The Bible says that the angels came, pronounced good tidings to them, good news, that the Savior had come into the world. Just as they had announced his coming, they also announced his departure. They were there. So when, as the disciples are there looking up in the sky, and Jesus is rising physically, rising up like that into the clouds, so they didn't see him anymore, okay? They're just there looking up. I think there are a few of them there. There's a couple of angels that stand next to them and say, what are you guys looking up in the, in the sky for? This Jesus who, who has gone up in that way, remember, he's going to come down the same way. And the Bible tells us that when he lands, he will land in exactly the same place that he left. He will land on the Mount of Olives. And his feet are going to touch down on that particular place there. So he ascended, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. As our advocate, you know what an advocate is? A lawyer, someone who defends you. So while the devil tries to, while the devil tries to, um, to, uh, to criticize us and the devil tries to hurl accusations against us, Jesus is there as our advocate and as our mediator. I wouldn't want a better lawyer. You wouldn't want a better lawyer. So thus, in doing all these things. In fulfilling all these scriptures, he defeated the devil. He defeated Satan, has now become the captain of our salvation. The captain is the one who goes before. He is our Lord, which means he is our master. He is our redeemer, which means he bought us, he bought us out of slavery and bondage. He is our shepherd, our mediator, our advocate, and the Bible even calls him our friend a nice friend to have in him we find all that we need and all the grace that we need to overcome every obstacle that, that this world and the devil will throw our way he is the one who has freed us from the chains of sin the prison that Satan has locked us up in this life and from a, a certain future in the place that is the only place in the universe that is the where God is not present 
where there is no fellowship, where all the things that we hold dear don't exist. And he's prepared a place for us in heaven. So in the passage we read today at the beginning, Jesus had spent 40 days and 40 nights in a wilderness being tempted by the devil. And after he'd done that and successfully overcome him, the Bible says that he started to go around and started to preach the message of God, started to preach the gospel. And he ends up in his hometown, back to the place where he grew up in Nazareth. And he goes into the synagogue and, as it says, he's his custom. He, he, he goes to the front, takes a scroll, and it was handed to him. The Bible says that the, the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. So they've got the scroll. That he moved it to the place where he read these particular words. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. That's the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight of the blind and set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. But look at all those things put together. Blind people gaining their sight. Deliverance to captives. Healing broken hearted. Sitting at liberty people. His mission was to preach to the poor, those people that that, ha- that lacked to set at liberty, to tell them that liberty was at hand. Liberty from a broken heart, deliverance from captivity. He would let the light into their black prison cell that they could see again and to free them that had been mistreated. In summary, he came to save people. He came to rescue people from prison. A prison that Satan has kept them in Their entire lives. Jesus came to break those doors and to let them out. Jesus came with a very, very clear purpose. To save me. To save you. To rescue men and women from the predicament that they're in. A predicament that they can only see. They can only understand when they hear the gospel. When the gospel tells them that they are sinners and they're bound for hell and there is nothing they can do to save themselves. That's why John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. In order to be saved, the Lord brings light. In the form of truth. This truth is received. If received sorry. Has the power to help set a person free. When they see their predicament. And understand that there is a solution to their problem. Just as the young man I spoke about in the hospital. Was under the impression. That there was nothing wrong with him. That everything was generally okay. Even though he'd done some some things. That he thought were very very minor in God's eyes. Once it was demonstrated that he had actually sinned against God and he was actually accountable to him and one day he would be judged, all of a sudden, he looked at himself in a different way.
The gospel of Jesus is able, able to open the eyes of the blind. It's able to open the eyes of people who are blind to what's going on. Blind to their spiritual position. Blind to the, to the situation that they're in and the, and the danger that they are in. And this is one of the greatest ploys of the devil to make people and to keep people away from that truth. Because that truth, once it opens up your eyes, he has a very hard time trying to stop it. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says here, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, that's the devil, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He wants to stop that light from reaching them. That's his goal. His goal is to keep them in the dark, keep them ignorant. That's why when you when you when it speaks about the sower of the seed and some falls on the on the path, the birds immediately come and take it up. The devil doesn't want any of that truth starting to sink down into your head and into your mind. So the so the birds are a picture of the devil immediately taking that thought away from you, distracting you away before you have an opportunity to understand what it's actually telling you. In order to come to the light. A person must realise that they've been in darkness and are in peril. That's why that great hymn that we sing, Amazing Grace, says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace teaches me, tells me how to relieve those fears. Unless you fear first, unless you're fearful of your position, why would you come to the light? Why would you come to Christ to be saved if you don't think, don't believe you need saving at all? Doesn't make any logical sense. In fact, someone who doesn't believe that they're a sinner and comes to Christ is only trialling him out as a, uh, as, a, as a way of doing something else. They can't possibly be saved unless they understand he came to save them from their sin. That's why the first ministry of the Holy Ghost says that when he has come into this world... He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Sin comes first. Because if you don't understand sin, you can't possibly understand where you're at. And unless you understand sin and then contrast it with the righteousness of God, you think you're okay. And that's why the Lord continually says, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repentance is the first understanding. It's first understanding your true state before God and completely changing your mind about it. Where first you loved sin, you made your home with it. You lived with it happily. You thought it was a friend of yours. It gave you great happiness and pleasure. All of a sudden, you have a change of mind about it when that, that flashlight of God's word shines on it and you, and you actually get to see what you've been living with. 
When you see the true nature of sin and you see the fangs of that serpent attached on you and you realise what you've been carrying in your pocket is akin to a snake, what would you do? Would you continue to caress it? Would you continue to look after it and feed it? No, the Bible says that when you realise the predicament that you're in and the snake is, is feeding venom to you and slowly killing you, all of a sudden you realise, I've got to get this thing out of my life. It has to go. I can't see it the same way anymore. And that's the light of God's truth that shows us that. Because otherwise, sin becomes an everyday thing that everyone else does. The, prob- the dist- distinguishing factor between a Christian, a saved person, and an unsaved person is that an unsaved person does what they do, like everyone else, and the, the things that we speak of as sin, and sees it as perfectly natural and, and, and normal, and sees it as something that, you can be, that can be enjoyed. The Christian looks at the same thing and says, that is not something I want. So the Christian then enters into a struggle for the rest of their life with these things. You see, because the Bible says that we still have the flesh. God hasn't eradicated the flesh from us, and that's a part of us that continually wants that. But God plants a new nature in us, which the Bible says that we are to continue to feed. The truth of God's word first opens up the eyes of the the unsaved person to understand what sin is doing to them. And that truth begins you on a journey running away from sin for the rest of your life. And yes, you may struggle with sin, but you know something? You struggle. A non-believer does not struggle. An unbeliever does not struggle with sin. They see it as part of them. And it's that truth that can save a person. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5 verse 13 with me. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 13. The first thing the devil tries to the first thing the devil tries to stop you from understanding is that knowledge that sin is deadly, that sin will lead you to death. And look what the Lord says here in Isaiah chapter five verse thirteen. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity. That's where the devil wants you, because they have no knowledge. And their honourable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore. Hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he, hath, and he that rejoice, rejoiceth shall descend into it. Now look what it says. My people perish. My people are gone into captivity because they lack knowledge. In fact, it, 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 it paints a picture of whether they were honourable men or their multitudes, they're thirsty for knowledge. That they're thirsty, they're completely dried up of the truth. And because of that, of that lack of understanding and knowledge, the Bible says, hell opens up her mouth as wide as possible, and they're all going down into it. 
And regardless of their, how many there are and their glory and their pomp and, and their rejoicing, they're going down into this thing rejoicing without realising that they're stepping in and over a cliff. What's that knowledge that they need to avoid that pit? It's the knowledge of the gospel. It's the knowledge of understanding how dangerous and deadly sin actually is. Jesus can free from the bondage of sin and Satan. While the devil uses sin to entrap us and to keep us locked up in a cage, Jesus came to save us from that and put us on a path of righteousness. Turn to John chapter 8, verse 31 with me. The truth that Jesus gives us, and he embodies all of that truth, can free a person. From that prison. John 8.31 says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, uh, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus can free us from sin. Not only from the penalty of sin. You know that he died, we all know that he died on the cross for our sin, therefore we're, we're freed from the penalty, which is hell. Okay, So we know we've been freed from that. The problem most Christians have is that they don't understand that Jesus can free us from the bondage of sin. He can free you from sin that is causing you problems in your life. The question really is whether you want to be freed of it. Whether you see it as evil as what it is. Whether you see it for the dangerous thing that it actually is. The truth of the Lord can make a person free. But that truth needs to be applied. That truth needs to be properly understood. This is one of the things a person who calls himself a Christian has been called to do. To continually apply the word of God to their lives in order that they might be more and more and more free from the sin that plagues us. But not only that, not only that, we are not just called to grow, and that's growth for a Christian, and you can grow. But that other truth is that we might share that gospel with other people around us who need to be freed from that sin. Paul, when he encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus, was given a commission to go to the Gentiles and preach the word to them, that they might also be saved. Turn to Acts chapter 26 with me. Verse 14. Acts chapter 26, verse 14.
So God first wants us to understand how bad sin is. He wants us to run away from it. He then wants us to understand that there is a solution for that sin, and that's, that's Jesus Christ who can set us free from the penalty and the power of that sin. And this message God said to Paul, I want you to deliver this message to the Gentiles. Okay? Acts 26.14 says, And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto men, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. God said specifically to Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles because I want you to share this gospel with them so you can save them from darkness to light. So they can be taken out of the kingdom of Satan and actually brought into the kingdom of God. That transfer can be made because Satan will not release you from his kingdom. Do you understand that? Do you remember, I remember growing up during the 90s and the 80s. Remember when the Cold War was going on with Russia and America? And every now and then you, they'd have a, an Olympic somewhere. And what would inevitably happen after the Olympics had happened? There'd be a defector. One of the, one of the, uh, a few of the uh, you know, athletes that were Russian would not be on the plane home. And then there'd be a whole thing that would come out of it and they'd say, you know, oh, this person has defected and then we're granting him immunity here and, and the Russians would get upset because people they'd lost people. But for people to want to do that, it meant essentially that they weren't being allowed to go. Okay? And the devil is the same. He doesn't, once people are in his kingdom, he doesn't want to let them go. But the beautiful thing about God is that when he sent his son into this world, he came crashing into that darkness. And he came to rescue us from that bondage, from that kingdom. He's gone right in the middle of all that darkness to take us and, and, and save us from that. That's why we're here. We're here because we were one day in the midst of that darkness. There was no way out of this kingdom. We were locked in a prison. We were under guard. We were in a, in a, a completely dark surrounding. And Jesus came in and broke into that prison cell and rescued us. And now we have an obligation, as Paul did, to actually share that truth with other people as well. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 with me. Because Paul then says that everyone who calls himself a servant of the Lord has this same responsibility. Everyone. We've been entrusted with this same truth that set us free, that can set other people free as well. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. 
if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. That's our job. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. It says that a servant of the Lord is not to strive. Well, strive means to fight. Okay? Don't argue. It says don't, don't get into arguments, silly arguments with people. But we have to do this thing with gentleness, with teaching, which means we need to know what we're saying, with patience and meekness. That's the demeanour that we are to have in this world. We're not to go arguing with people. We're not to go and, 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 and be loud. We are to do this thing with meekness and with great patience because it's God who grants the repentance. You know, when we share the gospel, don't think that it's you or me that's actually doing the work, that's breaking through. When we pray for people, we're praying for God to break through because ultimately it's God who actually shines that light on them and all of a sudden they see. All we do... We're just used of him to do that. We're used of him to share the words. It's him that actually does the actual work. That's why we say, well, that's why I can maybe plant a seed. You can then water it. But you know who gives the increase? It's God who gives the increase. Because if God didn't give the increase, it doesn't matter how much I planted and you watered or you planted and I watered, the seed would be dead still in the ground. It's God who always gives the increase. There's no glory for us. No glory for us at all because it's God who saves. But we have a responsibility, the Bible says, to share that word. To share the truth that changed our lives with them as well. Because if we let them die in darkness, they are gone forever. By preaching the gospel, our prayer and hope is that people will be saved. But remember that salvation does not just stop with the sinner's prayer. Would you agree with me there? Salvation doesn't just stop with once they pray a prayer, that's it. See you later. Oh, my job is done with you now. Now I'll go to the next person. No, the Bible says that we have to make disciples of everyone. And the first thing we need to be is a disciple ourselves in order to make us other disciples. So are we, a, are we a, true, a true disciple? A true disciple is one who continually follows Jesus, continually listens to him and, and, uh, and follows him in every, everywhere that you go. And we're trying to encourage other people to be the same. So the sinner's prayer is just the beginning part of salvation. Yes, God saves like that. But God doesn't want to leave you like that. God wants us to change and grow every day. Because the more we grow, the more people we can reach. The more he can use us to, to do what? To glorify himself and show the world that he indeed loves us. Salvation doesn't just stop with the sinner's prayer. Salvation includes the liberty that those who were once enslaved by sin can experience. One of the most amazing things that happens when a person gets saved is a sudden release from sin. I know some of you may have experienced that when you got saved. Okay? I did. Not every sin, okay? But there were, were certain sins that immediately God released me from. And for me, it was, a, it, was a, uh, it was a confirmation about what God had done in my life. But God doesn't just do it like that. God actually changes people's minds and the way they think. 
And maybe, you're, maybe you didn't have blatant sins in your life. You know how people give testimonies? I used to be a, a, a drug addict. I've killed 500 people. I was an axe murderer. I was an embezzler. And God saved me from all of that. And we think, oh, wow. My, my testimony is nowhere anything like that one over there. And you think, what have I got to show? Don't be... Don't feel inferior. Because you may not have been an axe murderer, Okay? You may not have killed anyone. You may not have embezzled millions of dollars of money. You may not have, have done all these amazing things and God saved you out of that. Do you know what I mean? And showed, and showed you some complete contrast in your life. You know, maybe you were more of a decent person. Okay? But God saw something in you. God changed the way you thought. God changed your heart. And God already did things in you that you may not have even realized that he'd done. But it doesn't stop there. God wants us to continue to change. Because as we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and our Saviour, as we grow in that truth that he's given us, the Bible says that we realise more and more things in us have to change. And we do. By God's grace, we do. Jesus gives us the ability to overcome our sins. He gives us the ability and the grace to overcome our faults. Our bad habits. He does do that. And you might think, you know, I've been struggling with this one for so long. I've been struggling with that one for so long. Why am I getting, why am I making progress? Well, there's a really nice hymn that we sing. And there are two elements to it. And it says, it starts with trust and obey. Very nice and simple. <laughs> Very simple. Trust, which means have faith, and obey. you got those two things working in your life. I will guarantee you, you will overcome. But if you can't obey, it probably means you're not trusting very much. Okay? Now, obedience is the part that will help you to overcome those sins. Jesus guarantees it. The problem with us is we say we trust but the obedience part might not be there. And then we say, look, it's not working. It's a bit like going to your mechanic and the mechanic says, oh, you, to get your motor fixed, you need to give it a, a, an oil change and we need to change this part of it. And you say, oh, okay. So you change the oil but you don't change the part that's broken. And you drive your car around and it's not working. Why isn't that working? I changed the oil. But you had to change the part as well. See, obedience opens up more and more. Obedience is a bit like where faith is, you know, where James says faith without works is dead, right? Okay, so faith with works makes faith even stronger. Okay? So it's, like I've said to you many times before, having a muscle face is like a muscle. God gave you the muscle, Right? So you've got the muscle to start working with. If you never work the muscle, where is it going to go? How strong do you think you're going to be if you never use that muscle and you always leave it there? But God wants us to exercise that muscle. And the way you exercise your muscle of faith is obedience. Trust and obey. Then you will start to see changes in your life. Okay? Otherwise, the words of Jesus aren't true. Otherwise, Jesus is lying to us when he says that the truth will set you free. 
But he says that in the context of, if you continue in my word. That's why he says that's the condition here. You need to continue and obey his word. Don't obey his word. Please don't expect much. Okay? Don't expect it. Jesus frees from the penalty of sin, but he also frees us from the power of sin. And there's an expectation on us to actually overcome sin in our lives because he's given us everything we need to do it. Turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 18 with me. And I want to just emphasize that point with you today before we close up. Romans chapter 6, verse 18. Being then made free from sin. We're free from it. We're no longer bound by it. Romans chapter 6 verse 18. Ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your, member, your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, now that you're saved, yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. Before we were saved, we were chasing and yielding our members, which means our body, its parts, my hands, my feet, and everything that, that I have, I was yielding it to sin. I wasn't chasing after righteousness. I was chasing after sin. But the Bible says now we've been freed from it. We're freed from it. So now... We can start chasing after righteousness. And that's what he tells us that we need to be doing with our lives. Where my hands would once sin, where my feet were swift to go and take me towards sin, the Bible now says, let your feet take you to righteousness and doing the right thing. Let your hands be used to actually glorify God and the things that are done. Let your mind, your eyes and everything you have chase after righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek him first. And all these other things that you want in your life will be added unto you. That's the simple message of the gospel. Once we're saved, we should seek the kingdom of God to pursue Jesus, to pursue righteousness, to grow day by day. And believe me, you will grow. You will grow. The problem we have is often we have very short memories. And when we look at ourselves, if, if you've been faithful, if you've been faithful with prayer, with the word of God, with obedience. If you've been faithful in those things over the last year and you haven't experienced change in your life, please come and see me. Please come and see me because I'd like to know that if you've been faithful in all these things and haven't experienced change, I would like to know. But if you haven't done those things, please don't come and tell me you haven't experienced the change. But if you're faithful, you will I will guarantee you will change. You'll be stronger now than you were a year ago and you'll be stronger in a year's time than you are now. It doesn't mean you're going to go up in a constant line. You may do this, but you'll be going up. Okay? Remember, Jesus can free you. He can free you from all your sins. But once you're saved, you need to understand that it's trusting and obeying. Trust and obey. Have faith. And believe and live that, that obedience. Remember always, if you struggle in your walk today, pray. 
that the Lord will actually deliver you from the sin. But please, don't pray if you're not willing to obey. Okay? Pray and obey. Trust and obey. Remember that obedience is, is critical for us because the more we obey, the more God gives us. The more and more he'll give you. Okay? I'll just close with this thought. Colossians 1.12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Have you been translated into the kingdom of Christ? If you haven't, then you're still in the kingdom of darkness and need to be saved from it. And I'll, I'll invite you today, if you don't know Jesus and you, you, if you don't know you're saved, then you're probably still in that darkness and you don't realise it. Please, allow the word of God to open up your eyes. Don't let Satan take it away from you. And turn to Christ because he is the only way to God. God bless you. Thank you.